This is The Lack with Nina Power and Benjamin Sudebaker. Today we have on a guest, an old friend of mine, Micah Needner, who loves movies. Today we are here to discuss a movie. That movie is The Worst Person in the World, and I'll kick us off. The Worst Person in the World is a Norwegian film from 2021. In my opening remarks, I often like to refer to the characters by their role, by what they do. I do this in part because most of the time, I can't remember character names. But it's also because I think the roles we perform constitute us. We are what we repeatedly do. We may not like what we do, and we may try to comfort ourselves with the lie that inside there is a real us out there somewhere that we can find. But whatever we thought we could have been or should have been, the truth about us is readily available to us in the concrete activities that comprise our ordinary days. What does the main character in this film do? Well, when we meet her, she's training to be a surgeon. Then she quits and pursues psychology. Then she quits that, too, and becomes a photographer. Then she works in a bookstore. Then she tries writing. At no point in the film does our main character commit to a role or adopt any of these activities as her craft. Whenever she gets close to committing, she starts to wonder if this is all there is to life. She's looking for the lost object, the thing that will make her feel whole and complete. And since there is no career that will do all of that, she backs away from every entanglement as soon as it requires dedication or perseverance. She does the same thing with men. As soon as the men in her life really want her to commit, she walks. This is not to say that she has no long-term relationships. She's in a relationship with an artist for several years. But as soon as it becomes clear he wants children, she starts to pull away. Eventually, she cheats on him and leaves him for a man who works in a coffee shop. But while the artist was intellectually stimulating, she struggles to respect what the barista does. When she gets pregnant by accident, she finds herself not at all sure she wants to stay with him. It's at this point that she finds out that the artist has terminal cancer. She visits her old flame in the hospital, who tells her over and over what a great mother she'll be, what a wonderful person she is. But is any of that really true? Our main character, and really that's all she is, has never committed to any role in her life. Why would she commit to motherhood? Her ambivalence is resolved when she miscarries, and we get the sense that she is relieved. The film ends with her once again working as a photographer, this time on a film set. An actress attempts to confide in her, insecure about the quality of her performance. Our main character tells the actress to instrumentalize her insecurity and capitalize upon it. Why is our main character like this? We get a few hints. At the start of the film, we're told she initially pursued surgery because in the medical field, her grades counted. This was the field where, she where what she possessed had the greatest exchange value. For our main character, grades were all-purpose means, and she was reluctant to exchange them for anything less than their full value. This is a completely facile way to choose a vocation, but it is, of course, the most common way so-called gifted kids make these kinds of choices. Our main character is able to figure out that this way of deciding is a mistake, but she is never able to come on to any other way of deciding. Even when she pivots into fields that seem to be better fits with what she claims to be her interests, we discover that she is never really interested in anything external to herself. Every job and every relationship is evaluated in terms of whether she has the upper hand in a transaction. Our artist suggests our main character behaves this way because of a distant relationship with her father. Without the father figure, she becomes obsessed with articulating and defending her own value. But this is a false empowerment, because when we focus on asserting our own value, it flies from us. We feel truly valuable when we develop our talents and skills in the service of something larger than ourselves. If we instrumentalize all of this, saying we do all of it to articulate a defense of the self, we are perpetually asking whether the people we are serving are in fact serving us. And since the self has no content outside of what it does for the other, this question becomes a bottomless pit. It leads to an endless grasping. This is not to say that we should not be concerned with whether we are being exploited by other people, with whether our roles are alienating. But there are two different ways of asking these questions. They can be asked from the standpoint of the individual, am I getting what I deserve? But they can also be asked from the standpoint of the abstractions we serve. Is this really how a good family ought to operate? 
Is this really how a good society ought to produce or distribute goods? When we focus on ourselves, we become disinterested in performing our roles, and that eats away at the very sense of self we are pursuing. When we focus on these other abstractions, we are able not merely to defend ourselves, we are able to construct better social formations. Because our main character never commits to her roles, she never commits to any abstraction outside the individual. The individual alone is insufficient, and the person who is transfixed by individuality lives by devouring the very thing they claim to love. This sort of thing has become endemic in our society because so many people have so little contact with well-ordered social formations of any kind. There is no trust in abstractions outside the self, because there are so few organizations that are anywhere close to the good. For those with dysfunctional families, dysfunctional workplaces, a dysfunctional economic system, it is entirely understandable that the individual would appear to be the one abstraction that is safe. But the retreat into the individual is a retreat from all good things writ large, and it leads to a trite and meaningless life. Before I wrap up, I want to say something briefly about the artist in this film. Our artist is a Gen Xer. And like many artists of his generation, he was able to make a good living by producing art whose main function was to break taboos. He draws comics featuring an ill-behaved bobcat who transgresses against bourgeois sensibilities. Ultimately, he makes a living as an artist by selling out, by allowing some studio to make an animated film about the bobcat. Predictably, the studio ruins the film in an effort to make it more family-friendly. Then... When he does shows to promote the film, the artist is confronted by younger interviewers who think his comics are misogynistic. His defenses fail to convince them. When he gets cancer, he admits what many of his generation would have to admit in his situation, that his work was inconsequential, that he spent most of his life celebrating forms of popular culture that mean nothing to the younger generation. Our main character tries to comfort him by telling him that he had something she is yet to find a meaningful role as an artist. But our Gen Xer was never committed to art for art's sake. He thought his art was political insofar as it was transgressive. When he discovers that his art, and the art of his whole generation, never succeeded in breaking taboos, but has instead produced a culture that is in many senses even more restrictive than the one with which he grew up, he despairs, and rightly so. That is the despair that should belong to his entire generation, and it should motivate them to do something to improve the concrete social world all around us. Gen X must re-embed before it is too late. Anyway, this was a very good and thought-provoking film. Let's hear what Micah thought of it. Uh, well, I mine's a lot less formal of a take than that, <laughs> but I... Um, I found uh, the whole experience of the film to be quite uh, anecdotally relatable in that um, it did a really killer job of um, nailing this sort of millennial existentialism, or at least what I can presume to be millennial existentialism as a millennial. Um, and I think the title of the film ties in with that too, you know, worst person in the world. It, it, it sets up this um, expectation that everybody, everybody going through it all right now, you know, trying to figure out who they are, so to speak, or to figure out their place in the world uh, is, ex is every, is experiencing this same sort of existential crisis of what, who am I right now? Why am I not better than where I'm at right now? Why am I not doing X, Y, or Z? And I think um, the if I were to pick like a specific scene in the entire movie that really, at least for me, spoke to this sort of feeling, both from a place of I've been there before, but also from a place of it's a really good uh, thematic way to uh, show this through film is the scene where um, we're all at uh, Julia's uh, mom's house and it does that sort of flashback montage of um, it's like my grandma was 32 when she uh, had children and then it's like my great grandma was 28 when she had her seventh 
child and and it sort of she starts going through this mental list of of comparing herself to her her ancestors all of whom grew up at a completely different time than she did with completely different uh, expectations and responsibilities and um both expectations internally but also societally uh and so i think uh that's that kind of that moment of the film really speaks to uh me but it also speaks i think to julia's experience going through this film of what it's like to be uh a millennial going through stuff in today's world a woman going through stuff trying to figure out you know the decision between do i want a family unit do i want career focus do i want happiness do i want all three can i have all three can i have more than that um and i think uh i well i'm I'm curious not to get too far ahead of myself i am very curious to hear nina what what you have to say just as the one woman in this conversation at the moment but um also I, i i i think it uh the the whole idea that we can all and you know in today in 2023 we can all be a person who feels like they maybe have their self together and their ideas together and what it takes them to be successful or happy or um on the right track so to speak whatever that track is for that specific person um i think we're all at this point where you you are conditioned to never quite be happy with that or or to not know when you've reached the pinnacle of like okay is this moment is this what i'm searching for you know is this job is this relationship is this um career advancement is this achievement you know like what 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 line do you draw yourself to um that to measure yourself by in a world where you're kind of increasingly, it feels like you you are forced to measure yourself by other metrics, be it the society around you, your, your own upbringing, your parents, your ancestry, anything. Uh, but I, I, uh, just want to capstone that by saying, I agree, Ben, that I, I, it was an enjoyable film and, uh, I, I found it to be both enjoyable from a, dark kind of humorous way but also from a relatable um millennial experience and i'll i'll kind of end my take there for the time being all right let's hear what nina thought go ahead nina (laughs) right so this is the second time i've seen this this film and uh i must say i was very annoyed the first time and i'm sort of even more annoyed the second um I, uh, <laughs> where to begin? I mean, unless this is a, a film about how annoying, uh, the main character and indeed all the characters in this film is, which, which in some ways it could be because there is an archness to it. The, the narration is, is doubled at points. You have the kind of, uh, ironic distancing, which is actually quite clever technique. You know, the voiceover saying the, the lines of the character as if to kind of draw attention to their cliched, uh, quality in some ways or the fact that there's a hollowness there. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I suppose let's begin with the title, The Worst Person in the World. It's a, it's a line actually spoken uh, at one point briefly by her second boyfriend. Um, but it's a, it's sort of deliberately misleading, uh, phrase. It's, it's certainly something that people say dramatically at certain points if they've, um, I don't know, transgressed or upset somebody. Oh, I feel like I'm the worst person in the world, you know, is a thing that people say. But but as a title for a film, uh, it, it can only lead to disappointment, I suppose. You you start off the film with her looking very cat-like and maybe a bit evil or malevolent at some party. And you think, yes, amazing. It's going to be about some sort of, you know, really demonic woman who's going to mess stuff up. And then it turns out to be incredibly dull, bourgeois, normie, millennial, rich people film about Norway or you know middle class people like whatever Norwegian I mean I don't understand how people who work in a coffee shop can live in like apartments that like have seven rooms or whatever um it's a bit like friends or something um so so the title is like you know disappointing uh it's very unlike films that are maybe 15 years older like the opposite of sex for example which really explores in great detail a kind of uh uh 
female evilness, which I, I thought this was going to be about. But I think, um, you know, I, I find the main character incredibly insipid. Maybe that's the point. You know, she, as Benjamin says, she never really commits to anything. She's narcissistically always looking out for her own experience. She, you know, when they visit his friends, his brother near the beginning of the film, and she's with the much older guy, she is sort of really like selfish and self-indulgent in terms of not trying to get along with them particularly well or being kind of acting out and, you know, making it all about her. Um, you know, maybe that's kind of representative. Um, I do agree with uh, Micah that the scene with the grandmothers, I think, is the crucial one with the photographs and this kind of um, almost ironic ancestral look, because in the end, of course, she doesn't reproduce. And, you know, a lot of that discussion is about how many children the women have. Um, we have to say that this particular model of freedom that is being explored in the film, both in terms of Gen X and Millennial, which I'll, I'll come back to the Gen X point because Benjamin made a very provocative claim, uh, which I will return to in a minute. But um, we have to say that ultimately that the freedom to fail, let's say the freedom to not reproduce, uh, is indeed freedom. As Simone de Beauvoir makes this point, you know, the freedom to fail is actually when we know that women are liberated <laughs> so so there you go so in that sense it is an existentialist film very very profoundly uh she she perhaps we don't see the moment of decision she has this miscarriage but she she doesn't seem particularly upset when she sees her former partner with a new baby in fact she 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 you know she she seems like she's acknowledged uh that's how life is she's now being a photographer, not a particularly good one, uh, but then she's not particularly good at anything uh, other than being a bit selfish. Um, so I think this connection between freedom and failure is made very well in the film. In that sense, uh, we could say it's a very successful millennial film. We, we um, followed this followed our earlier discussion of Borderline, which we me and Benjamin discussed last time, uh, which explores similar themes, perhaps in a slightly darker way. There's something twee about this film that I don't particularly uh, like. Um, I think these kind of cutscenes where the kind of fantasies of these romantic, it's like this kind of millennial rom-com, very annoying. I just sort of don't care. I feel like that blue man in The Watchmen, you know, who's sort of like looking at these humans going like, you bore me. You know, I, I like those scenes. I just say, oh, God, I don't care. You're so boring. Like the trip is so boring, like these kind of endless arguments and conversations. I mean, and in a way, of course, they are boring, like when one has them oneself. And of course, like Michael was saying, there is this kind of recognition, you know, like this horrible recognition um, of certain uh, aspects of one's own performance as a as a subject in a relationship or uh, in the contemporary world, which is kind of unavoidable. Um, yeah, I think maybe this question of of happiness and the problem with happiness is something that I've been thinking about because, you know, we have a deliberate misunderstanding in our culture that happiness is supposed to be something that we want, which is a terrible, terrible mistake, because for, for many generations before us, happiness was not something that anyone <laughs> cared about. It referred more to, to luck. You know, if you said that someone was happy, it meant that they were they were lucky. And, and you know, hap is like happenstance, happening. It's really on the side of fate. It's not really something that you can choose. And I think the moment we make this fantasy collectively that happiness is something you choose or something you can decide, then you, you put people in this limbo state, which is, again, part of the film, right? She doesn't know what she's doing. She's sort of doing what she thinks she ought to. But these messages are coming from everywhere. You know, she wants to be successful. She wants to be recognized. She wants to be intellectually stimulated. She wants to be read. I mean, at the only moment of success, quote unquote, in the film for her is she writes a, a short story about a blowjob. And this gets published and widely circulated. She's like a kind of millennial Carrie Bradshaw. And this is it. But this is like it. Like this is the only real contribution that she makes. And of course, we could say this is kind of a joke as well. Um, but also recognition that this is precisely the sort of crap that does get published um, online and circulated. And we can think of like cat person or, or any of these kind of viral short stories, maybe. Um, 
some of which are very good, like the ones by Mary Gateskill for The New Yorker, for example, are very, very good. But, um, you know, as a kind of, I don't know, symbolic representation of the literary ambitions of, of millennials, perhaps this is uh, kind of an observation. But I suppose let's, let's go to the Gen X point. I agree that this uh, the older character, you know, very much represents this generation, right? A generation that grew up perhaps... Um, infantilized or infantilizing itself through contemporary culture in a slightly different way than millennials, obviously pre-internet. So comics, he the the main guy draws kind of like R. Crumb comics, which are themselves in a throwback to the 60s counterculture. So there's also a kind of idea that I would say the Gen X culture is itself a pale imitation or inheritor of 60s counterculture. Um, which living through the 90s, I have to say, is true in terms of the uh, the alternative culture was largely parasitic on the 60s culture, whether, whether it was indie music or indie comics, indeed, or indie filmmaking, perhaps more referencing the 70s. You know, so so genuine innovation was was thin on the ground, but we did still have subcultural attachments to different things um, in a way that it's no longer possible in this multi-platform, uh, completely uh, both homogenizing but also fractured culture. Um, you could still have maybe like a more uh, real and but more um, divided relation to different cultures, let's say, uh, in the 80s and 90s, um, if only because there was not one single medium <laughs> that everyone was using all the time. People were still reading books and listening to records and sometimes people would do lots of one and lots of the other. Of course there was television, but actually Gen X was not really a television generation in some ways, not compared to the boomers. We we actually are between mediums, I would say, as a generation, between radio, between television, between internet, also between uh, mobile phones as well. We didn't use them until our 20s, largely. Benjamin made the provocative comment, uh, or <laughs> um, suggestion that Gen X should... Uh, get it together and, and perhaps not die of pancreatic pa- cancer, but rather take over their their um, historical role uh, as well. What what would we call it? Perhaps you know, standing up for the reasonable middle, the the, the sense of humour maybe that is lacking often in uh, contemporary politics and discussions of identity and so on, which have become fanatical and hysterical, nowhere, nowhere more so in their contradictions than in the past few, couple of weeks, uh, where people who are calling for, you know, words being violent for the past decade, when confronted with real violence, um, don't really know what to do other than to double down on a, a kind of bizarre uh, fetishization of, of, of what they imagine is oppression. Um, and politics has become extraordinarily... Uh, let's say non-complex <laughs> um, in many ways and you know questions of free speech abound perhaps we'll talk about this on the, the B side um, and I, I don't know what it would mean for Gen X to, to stand up I mean we have to say there are some very successful Gen Xers uh, particularly in technology Elon Musk and um, what's his name Mark Zuckerberg and so on I think would all be are all Gen X is so, again, we're playing this mediating role, um, facilitating the uh, <laughs> increasingly divided political landscape um, and and the sort of generational divisions. I think we are probably doomed as a generation. I think our doom is uh, inherent to who we are and the culture that we grew up with, which is very pessimistic and very heavily tilted towards a kind of different kind of narcissism, but a narcissism nonetheless, but more a narcissism of um, hedonism and drug use and drink, as opposed to the narcissism of identity and and, and mental illness, which seems to dominate the the image that millennials have of themselves. Uh, I think for some reason we still suffer in silence. and, uh, you know, our isolation and atomization is different and it's sort of apolitical in some ways. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I hope that Gen X might stand up, but I think we're too small. 
a sandwich between <laughs> between you guys and the older people. So I don't know. We'll just die in hospital. Um, <laughs> I'll leave it there. You know, there's always a tendency to want to triangulate a little bit. You know, if you're in a fight with uh, the boomers, try to get Gen X on your side. I think both uh, the millennials and the boomers try to weaponize or use Gen X as a club with which to beat the other. But Gen X you know, can't find its own, its own voice. That's always been the, the problem, right? I mean, that's why you've still got the letter and not a proper name. Um, maybe. I, I, I think, I mean, you know, we, we did live through the end of history. Like we came of age literally at the end of history and the kind of unipolar consumerist world could only, you could only have an ironic detachment to it because of course it's still covered up violence and, and all of the things that never go away and America, the American empire and all those things. Um, but I suppose there really was no alternative, I guess you could say like when Mark Fisher talks about capitalist realism, that was the world that was presented, you know, all you could do is have a, yeah, maybe a try to achieve or assume kind of detachment to the hypocrisies and contradictions of that world. I'm not saying that there were never any great activists or protests, but even those modalities, seemed to be over and I suppose it was like living through the end of the end is what it felt like um and in that sense there's a kind of I think I've written about this before but like this kind of zen it's more like gen zen <laughs> generation zen you know because it's a sort of depressive zen like you know hence the drug use and so on I think um and suicide you know extremely high I try I track the rates. It's not good. Um, and yeah, our kind of a pre-acceptance of futility, you know, like you can't play, you can't lose the game if you don't play was our motto really. Um, but that just means that the gap gets filled by maniacs. And now we're surrounded by maniacs with no sense of humor. And it's like, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, it, that, that scene where he's talking to the woman, you know, the, the, the post-feminist so-called, and she's very angry with him and he's trying to be funny, but he's also coming across as very spiky. And, and actually, you know, of course, I agree very much with what he's saying in the interview, as I would do. You know, he's saying that art is not there to comfort you and, and you know, it's all about the darkness and, you know, he should feel free to express himself and if she's offended it's up to her it's her decision you know and, and all of these sorts of things and the 90s was very much like this and that transgression obviously did not sustain itself we had the backlash against it which is now this new prison <laughs> and I don't know why millennials couldn't find us funny <laughs> I think part of the trouble, right, is that the Gen X conception of art is not fully independent from politics. It is already, to some degree, a, a compromise between aesthetics and politics, right? In the sense that if the purpose of art is to break taboos, then the purpose of art is to have some kind of political effect. And then once art has a political purpose, you can then critique it on the grounds that uh, you you know don't agree with the political purpose. I wonder about that. I mean, I think also in the film, the transgression is actually more at the level of saying things you're not supposed to say. I don't think it's or pointing out the kind of contradictions or you know trying to trying to re-describe in an ironic way the experiences that everybody has. I, I'm not sure about the politics aspect. Um, you know, the lines that are being crossed were being crossed. I think 
Because the assumption, the axiom of like 90s humor is that everything is mockable, including yourself and especially yourself, right? Because we're all idiots. Like the baseline assumption is like everyone's an idiot. But that's good because it means we can laugh at ourselves. And by laughing at ourselves, we actually avoid politics. So actually, I think it's a last ditch attempt to avoid politics. Hmm. That's how I would understand it, because politics is serious. And when people get too serious and things go horribly wrong, and the whole point would be to, like, lighten the mood. So in that sense, we were like clowns, but like clowns are also sad, you know. So I think that the dark side of trying to be comedic, right? So so what is a post-tragic culture? Well, the comedy comes back. But actually, you need a culture that has comedy and tragedy, but not in the same person. You know, so like by trying to make everything lighthearted and on the surface and mockable in its darkness, bring the darkness to light. It I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't solve the tragic problem. Michael, what do you think? Is Gen X humor politics or anti-politics? I I feel like Gen X's humor is generally anti everything. Um, I, but I don't think that's necessarily in contrast to millennials or to Gen Z or, I mean, really, I if if you kind of sift through any of the the areas where Gen Z are currently doing the most social interaction like TikTok or other things online. I mean, like they're very similar in the same way of, of resigning themselves to this sort of like uh, humor out of the pits of despair kind of thing where it's like, hey, nothing matters. You know, the world's burning to the ground. We have no prospects for our future. But like, here's this spicy meme. Uh, and I th- like I think that's you can see the threads in in that same style of humor going from Gen X through millennials, through Gen Z. It just kind of takes a different uh, form depending on which age bracket you're dealing with, or at least that's from my observation, that's kind of what it seems like. But I think there, there is inherently some form of like counter, uh, humor going on. That's like, okay, well we need to be, contrast to whatever that is because uh to to take that in complete seriousness with no humor no anything would just doom you to a a life of of depression and and uh you know uh if you can't find the levity in the despair then you're you're stuck with the despair and i think Gen X maybe, you know, was the key in, in kind of, I don't know if pioneering is the right way to put it, but, but you know, that's kind of what their humor is known for. But I wouldn't say that it's like pinned or, or that they, they are the only ones who, who operate in that sphere from a, from a humor level. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I went to a event for Chris Catrone, his, uh, his new book, The Death of the Millennial Laugh. Mm. went to an event uh, for his book in Chicago, and he, he talked a little bit about this. And he said that what he sees in the Zoomers is a reemergence of Gen X organizing culture, Gen X uh, uh, politics and humor. And I, I think that vibes broadly with what you're saying. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if there's a way of making this despair more productive. And this is my kind of poking at Gen X is, can we do something with this despair rather than just uh, make jokes as a way of coping with it or take drugs as a way of coping with it or kill yourself because you can't cope with it? Is there something useful we can do with it? I think there's an insight that Gen X has, that the stuff that the boomers and the millennials get have gotten caught up in has been a, a stupid waste of time that's not accomplished very much. You know, all of the stuff that we've tried to do to make the world a better place, none of it's really working and it's all a bit of a stupid waste of time. And I think Gen X and and the Zoomers, they get that. So can they then do something creative to help us get something new that goes beyond the failures rather than just, uh, you know, take the Mark Fisher line of there's nothing you can do, capitalist realism, we're stuck with it as it is. 
I mean, to be fair to Mark, I mean, you know, before he de- before his death, he was trying to break out of that diagnosis. I mean, that you know, to right. diagnose something is not the same as to accept it, right? And I think he was always not accepting. <laughs> yeah, I don't mean that as a criticism of no, Mark. No. I, sure. uh, Mark is great because he's a touchstone for this point. Mm. Uh, but yeah, there's there's got to be some kind of of move to do something about this, as opposed to uh, just. Yeah, there's a, a kind of appropriate despair, I think, over the fate of the Bernie movement or over the fate of the 60s mm-hmm. left or, or what ha- or the 70s left. Um, but then there's got to be some some further move. Otherwise, you just wait 20 years until there's a new generation that doesn't remember the lessons of the defeat. Uh, and then that generation replicates all the same mistakes. I mean, in a, in a way, it goes back to the Zen point, which I'm now going to spell with an X. <laughs> So it's now XCN. Um, but I think it's basically like do very little. Like, I, in a way, this is the lesson that we learned. The problem with this for millennials is that it's impossible for you to do nothing because you don't have anything in the first place. Right. So you need somewhere to live. And you've been given this image of the world, which is an extremely competitive one in which you're you're told you must compete at all times on all levels with everyone else in order to just tread water, which is not the lesson we received, um, which our, our lesson was just sort of do what you want. <laughs> and it's OK because it's fine, like whatever. And you can always sleep in someone's spare room or something <laughs> like this. And like, there is a kind of beauty in doing very little and not doing, not contributing, let's say, more to the sum total of human misery or inventing new things that just mess people up or whatever. And, you know, but I say that at the same time, we are still participating in the sort of long acid trip of the 60s in terms of the, you know, techno insights of, of people working for Apple and so on. And we couldn't break out of that either. I mean, I, I would have hoped that there would be more anti-tech Gen Xs. I mean, we do have them in the form of people like Paul Kingsnorth and um, Dougal Hind and the Black Mountain Project. And there is a kind of, you know, um, I don't know how to put it, pro-nature Gen X, do little, do nothing, kind of even Illichian strain, which is not the same as the green movement it's not exactly what's going on with the environmental movement which has become a kind of eschatological cult um in many ways like the kind of extinction rebellion type just a boil you know kind of death obsessed i think there was an attempt to try to live in a more balanced way that was possible um i'm feeling rather pessimistic in general at the moment in terms of our ability to to survive collectively any forthcoming conflagration and i think if you look at the work of rene girard when he talks about when we're all basically tied into the same system it will take one spark and the whole thing will go up and i think this is unfortunately where we're at in terms of our hyper connectivity as a planet and as a species, which is no longer the the kind of optimistic version of that, which we had in the 90s with work on angels and connection and globalization as this great coming together. Um, people like Michel San and others, but rather a hyper connectivity, which is about five seconds away from going up in flames. Um, but then people have always thought that, too. Well, this is the thing that I think the Zoomers have on on Gen X and then also on the Millennials. The Zoomers uh, recognize that the things the Millennials have tried to do have not been successful. But the Zoomers also do not have the economic capacity to withdraw in the way that the Gen Xers did. The Gen Xers still got enough of the post-war boon that they could, you know, squirrel away some money and uh, live modestly. That's not really possible in this 
more hyper-competitive context. So my, my hope is that, well, you shouldn't call it a hope. My, uh, my theory, my theory is that the, the Zoomers, because they also have to come up with a way to live, but don't have a way to live, will have to do something with their despair instead of uh, just retreating into the cultural silo and the subculture and the you know, coffee shop apartment. The whole friends thing of have a, have a coffee shop job and live in an apartment, you know, that's very Gen X because in Gen X, you could broadly speaking do that. You could afford to pay rent if you had some slacker job. That's what they call them, right? The slackers, the people who did the bare minimum necessary to pay their rent and they were able to have an apartment and it was reasonably nice. That was the 90s, right? Slacker culture. I, I think what even the Zoomer even, can't do is be yeah. a slacker. No, I think even at the time, uh, it would have been impossible to have an apartment overlooking Central Park whilst working as a barista. But yes, yes. that that would have been true in any case. But also that was part of the ideology of the time was that you could just, you know, go to Portland where young people go to retire. And yeah. Well, I do also. Just, that's I, the, I, you know, the old show Portlandia. I, I, I want to make the comment to Ben real quick that uh, yeah. I, I I think it's also uh, important to remember that the, the depiction in the movie is uh, essentially uh, a Gen X director and writer's view of millennial struggles, too. So this, you know, guy working in a coffee shop. And being able to live with his girlfriend in this apartment with seven rooms or, you know, however many is it's from the lens of a of a Gen Xer who's making this movie, who who's, you know, probably parlaying his own experience with his own worth and existentialism and happiness and whatever else in onto the characters and onto the story. Uh, but ultimately, I think. You know, there are threads of of Gen Xerisms that come through as if, you know, it's the millennials experiencing the same plight of the Gen X problems. Uh, not to say that it's necessarily any different or 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 maybe, you know, it, it is similar to a certain degree. But, yeah. but and it's it's Norwegian. Right. So the the context is also a little bit different insofar as these changes have happened more slowly in Scandinavia than they have sure. in the Anglosphere. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. It's, a, it's an interesting point that it's still the case that when content is made about millennials, it tends to get made by older generations. And so it's still infused with that perspective. I wonder if the filmmaker loved a millennial woman in the way that the artist in the film. God, I, I'm sure. I mean, <laughs> undoubtedly, like I'm just looking up the director. Yeah, I mean, 1974. I mean, he's like four years older than me. Uh, yeah, I mean, it makes sense <laughs> that he would make this this film um, in the way that he did, and including the the apartments. And yeah, I mean, sure, Norway, middle class, but yeah, I mean, it's a very, very, yeah. I mean, this film could have been made during the last twenty years, right? It's not specifically. Oh, there's one scene at the end where she's wearing a mask or something, right? But this is the only like hint of contemporaneity, but um. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he comes from a filmmaking family. He was a skateboarding champion when he was young. That's a very Gen X thing to be as well. And yeah, I mean, I'm it might be the most like, Gen X thing you could. Yeah, do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Very true. And I, I mean, I remember when everyone was skateboarding at school, including the girls, because, you know, like boys and girls did the same thing and no one ever told you to take drugs. Uh, to change your sex it was great um <laughs> not to to harp on in this turfy gen x way but you know like you're allowed to be you know express yourself without someone telling you you were wrong and um yeah so i i imagine given his biography and and the support he would have gotten from his culture his country and his parents and his family like this man is probably not struggled economically particularly or artistically other than in the the normal artistic romantic poetic sense yeah and there's a lack of felt economic constraints in this film compared with say borderline where that was very evident 
Mm-hmm. I the whole film to me comes across at, for better or for worse. I mean, it comes across as kind of a uh, I this guy's sort of spewing himself into his film. Like, here's my experience with with middle class or upper middle class uh, problems in a in a first world country. And so, I mean, the film itself, it's very hard to separate it from that from that space of it being a middle to upper middle class problem, which is self-worth, happiness, pursuit of happiness. Like these are all problems that you have when you are having just like a personal identity crisis and not a problem you have when you are suffering from um, these larger widespread But I also think at the same time, a lot of those problems are problems you are told to think of yourself as having in lieu of confronting the economic or structural or system problems, right? Like if you're a millennial and you're not doing that well, you'll be told to do a bunch of self-care and work on yourself and think about yourself and read Marcus Aurelius and what have you, right? You know, you'll be told to think about it as if it is this kind of problem, even if it's something much more concrete, like, you know, you, your car is broken down. Or, you know, you can't, uh, you know, afford a house. Well, I think but people this, tell you to in- internalize it in some way. And I think this kind of jumps back to Nina's point earlier about, you know, what Gen Xers were told the world was going to be like. Well, I think what millennials were told was that anything is achievable, period, whether that's economic success, whether that's your personal goals, happiness, like you, we were told like happiness is an achievable thing, which is not true. Like it's a fleeting moment of, of emotion and energy, but like, it's not, we've been told that we should be on this endless pursuit of success, of happiness, of achievement, because all you have to do is, is put in the work and you'll get it. And that's kind of what millennials were told is that, if you try hard enough, if you do the things that we did, you'll get what we have and more because that's how it's always been, even though it's not how it always was. Uh, but like that, I think that is very much what millennials were told. And and so then you have this sort of that's where kind of this existential crisis angle comes from it, because that's just simply not how the world works. And so when somebody tells you do these things and you will achieve this. um, and then you are grappled with the the fate of not that's not you can't achieve those things or or at least not in the same levels of ease or promise that you were told like it i think that's kind of where some of the fallout comes from for millennials at least in that angle i have a question so that we talked a little bit about the title. The film, you know, is the worst person in the world. And then at the same time, also, we have the artist character that we think might be, to some degree, a stand-in for the director, maybe, uh, who says to this woman that she'll be a great mother, that she's a wonderful person. So what do we think the film really thinks of her? Does the film really think, because we had this a little bit in the beginning about, is the film a bit arch? Does the film really have the view that she's a terrible person or does it really have the view that she's a great person and someone who ought to be loved or is it in some ways both at once where the film wants to in some way redeem this troubled figure that the film is kind of uh, recognizes as troubled but is fixated upon in the way that an older man might view a younger woman as troubled but someone he can save or help in some way if only she would let him which unfortunately she won't let the artist i i didn't th- personally see it as the like the film itself taking an angle or of who was the worst person i more saw it as what uh how julia saw herself and her constant judgment of herself as i am the worst person in the world why can't i know that I want or don't want children or why can't I know that I want to go into psychology or photography or, and, and and so I saw it more as like the self, more like a societal angle of like the self-critical of like, I feel like the worst person in the world because I can't, I have all these things and I can't decide what I want to do 
And why can't I decide what I want to do? And why can't I feel content or happy with all of these th- choices or decisions that I should be making or want to make? And and why can't I know where I'm at? And that, that's how I personally saw you it. You saw it as subjective as what goes on in her head. And then it's for her, us to her think about. Her head or other people like her. So, so not necessarily like the film saying, you are the worst person in the world. And not herself saying, I solely am the worst person in the world. But rather like collectively... I and other people like me feel like I am the worst person in the world because X, Y, Z reason. I thought there was a possible reading that the film thinks that the bourgeois person who is absorbed with who finding who they are, that that person is in some sense the worst person in the world because increasingly we are governed by such people. You know, these are the people who do tend to move up in the institutions, people who spend their 20s and 30s going, who am I? What am I? And... Uh, and kind of hopping around, bouncing around, tend to find their way into positions of importance in the society. You know, a lot of the critiques of the uh, elite institutions and, and bureaucratic culture are about this kind of person who somehow ends up in charge of you. Uh, and we see this at the very end of the movie, where finally, as she's getting older and more experienced, you know, she gets into a conversation with an actress where she you know, tells that actress to you know, utilize her suffering to make the film better in, instead of just complaining about it, uh, to lean into the suffering and uh, use it to do your job better, which to me seems like the, you know, the kind of classic human resources, you know, evil bureaucrat kind of thing to say. And that scene at the end of the film made me think maybe on some level, we're talking about how do you make the worst kind of person? You know, you start with a young person who is completely self-absorbed and then eventually they end up in an institution where uh, when confronted by somebody else's problem, it's how can I use this problem to get this person to do something that benefits me or serves me? Yeah, I mean, I think to go back to what I was saying before about, you know, that the line is a cliche itself, right? Like, so at some point, everyone said, I feel like I'm the worst person in the world, right? And I think... Maybe in that sense, we could read it as a film about cliches and all of the cliches of romantic, you know, strife, which feels personal, but is in fact completely dominated and shared by our cultural understanding of what it means to be in a relationship. Right. She says repeatedly, I feel like a bit character in my own life or, you know, I feel like I'm looking in and, and you know, these kind of things, which are also cliches. Um, so I think there's this kind of um, point about acting i mean obviously like i said at the beginning i i think i wish it had been about some kind of very evil machiavellian scheming woman right like this would have been a much more interesting film the, the problem with this character is she's very boring ultimately and banal and i and this like the banal cv4 i agree that there this is a huge problem for institutions and bureaucracies and in that sense gen x has definitely failed to stand up to uh, millennial sociopaths and narcissists um i don't know why we i tried but you can't really win <laughs> uh against fanatics uh they'll just want to kill you um and you know they it it's very difficult to deal with people who have no sense of humor i'm, I'm not saying this this girl necessarily is exactly like this i mean she's more banal than than sort of um covert um but she's but she's not sort of explicitly Machiavellian she's just a bit selfish and a bit self-absorbed and and that's fine I mean this is who people are generally and in that sense we're all the worst person in the world I suppose wow well if that's who people are generally then we're getting into pretty bad shape (laughs) (laughs) as people yeah. Well, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's a tendency, like you said, of, of a particular culture to produce this particular kind of person. And yeah. Yes, it's a tendency. At the same time, it, it's of course, it's not her fault that she is the way that she is. And we do get hints in this film about why she is the way that she is. I just wonder, does that mean that we have to qualify to the, the degree to which we also make the point that we what she does is not great? And we can say what she does is not great without saying that it's her fault that she does what she does or that people who do these kinds of things should just be shamed for it. 
and I've I've been consistently trying to disentangle this. I, I feel like a lot of people have kind of gotten the point recently that you know, our society systematically produces all kinds of malaise and all kinds of miserable people, right? So it's not people's fault that they're miserable and that they can't uh, manage. But that doesn't mean that the things they do because they're miserable and can't manage are good things or things that we should encourage or things that we uh, shouldn't discourage. It's just that the form that our discouragement takes should be structural rather than moralistic and blaming and shaming and uh, you know, just criticizing. And I think that that needle we have really failed to thread. We have people who will excuse anything on the basis that it comes out of a structural situation. And then we have people who will uh, heavily, heavily criticize the particular people who are associated with actions that we don't like without actually doing anything to tackle the problem or resolve it. And th the whole thing recently with Hamas is a great example of this, where you have on the one side people who go, well, what Hamas has done is horrible, and therefore uh, Hamas has to be morally criticized heavily uh, for, for what they're doing. And on the other side, people who go, well, there are structural explanations for why Hamas is behaving the way that Hamas is behaving, and therefore you can't criticize the actions themselves. Surely it has to be possible to criticize the acts while at the same time focusing on the structural conditions that bring about the acts. That basic level of complexity has totally escaped everybody and it's become impossible to talk about the issue without uh, somebody immediately demanding that either you uh, excuse Hamas on the basis that there are structural reasons for what they do or that you condemn Hamas on the basis that the things that they're doing are, are bad. Uh, and the same then goes for Israel, you know, with, uh, with Israel's behavior. There's, uh, you, know, you could think about Israel's behavior in terms of the structure of the situation, in terms of the way that that government is constructed and the kinds of incentives that that form of construction gives that government. Uh, and you could do that without excusing any of the particular things that the government does. In fact, that would inform and help you think about how to change the behavior of that government. Uh, but instead, we don't do that and we just moralize about it and blame and shame people. And so there's a part of me that wants to say she is the worst person in the world, but it's not her fault. You know, yeah, she sucks. It's not her fault that she sucks, though. And what could we do to make a society where fewer people are so awful? But when you do that, people go, oh, are you, are you blaming her for the way that she is? And, and so you, the, our ability to even stay in, in, the, in the needle without coming back out of it is so limited and our energy and our time is so limited that we just can't stay in that conversation for very long. And it used to be that so many conversations that we had we're within the needle almost completely. You know, when we talked about Israel and Palestine in the 90s, it was, you know, there are Oslo talks, you know, there, Clinton is meeting with Arafat and Ariel Sharon, and, and they're trying to hash out something. And, you know, there are specific sticking points in the negotiations. And is there a way around those sticking points? And what would a way look like? And we just don't do that anymore. We don't even talk about what would a negotiated solution be. Uh, we don't talk about peace as something that you could aspire to or something you could produce by you know, actually acting. We just talk about what should you say? Who should you condemn and who, who should you be angry with? And, and all of the you know, media outlets on the left, the right, the center, they all just marketize the whole thing and capitalize upon it as a way of driving up clicks and, and advertisers. None of them really give a shit about any of it either way. They only talk about it when it gets clicks to talk about it. They only talk about it when people are dying and you can show pictures and videos. You know, nobody really gives a shit. And most of the people that I hear talking about it are just going, what line can I have about it that is defensible, that will you know, cause my career to be okay or cause my publication to do all right? It's just what line? You know, that's what everybody is asking. What's the acceptable uh, response? Because nobody actually cares. And the people who are the loudest and the most emotional about it care the least. They just see it as a branding opportunity. Anyway, I've just now gone on a long Israel-Palestine rant. So <laughs> that means it's time to go to the B-side. Thank you guys so much for listening. And have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.